What the Marvels has going for, apart from a 105-minute running time, is the energizing presence of Canada's Iman Vellani as Kamala Khan, Marvel's first Muslim superhero. She's almost enough to save a movie that ultimately is beyond redemption. That's Peter Howell, hometown paper, talking from the Toronto Star about the Marvels, one of our feature reviews this week. But let's be honest. It wasn't particularly good. He's right. The, she was great. Kamala Khan, that character. Other than that, it was what I was expecting, which makes you wonder, why the hell am I still seeing Marvel movies? It's the 33rd <laughs> entry, by the way, in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, which could use an updating. Having said that, the good news is I did watch the new Nicolas Cage movie, Dream Scenario, which is batshit crazy. And I really enjoyed that. <laughs> and he's very, very funny in it. And also, I'm thrilled about this. The Holdovers, which last week I reviewed here on Cinephile, I said, it's one of the best pictures of the year. And you're saying to yourself, hey, the actor strike is over. They're back, right? The actors are available to speak again. 118 day strike is over. It's amazing news. You got Paul Giamatti. No, we didn't get Paul Giamatti. <laughs> you say, okay, well, Alexander Payne, two-time Academy Award winner, this guy won Oscars for Sideways and the Descendants, nominated for directing for Nebraska, seven-time Oscar nominee. We didn't get Alexander Payne. He turned us down, point blank. The good news is, what is Cinephile about? Writers. We got the writer, baby. <laughs> That's right. The writer of The Holdovers, David Hemmingson, is going to join us today. And he was absolutely fantastic. Dave's got a really interesting background as far as a TV writer. But this is his first cinematic feature. And to work with Alexander Payne, AP as he calls him, honestly, David Hemmingson is fantastic. You're really going to enjoy the interview, especially if you love the movie. He talks about Giamatti's brilliance as an actor. Again, working with Alexander Payne, Divine Joy Randolph, the whole shebang. It's uh, a really interesting interview. I think you're all going to look forward to. Again, no old movie this week. We got those two new movies. And next week, by the way, Poor Things, which again, speaking of bonkers, it's bonkers and it's brilliant. From Yorgos Lanthimos, the director of The Lobster and The Favorite, starring Emma Stone and Mark Ruffalo and Willem Dafoe. That movie's not coming out until December, but I'll give you my review next week because I went to the critic screening last week, which is really cool to see in New York City. And in addition to that, Anatomy of a Fall, which won the Palme d'Or, tremendous foreign film and for all you comedy fans i'm got 30 minutes left right now i'm watching the albert brooks new documentary on hbo max defending my life rob ryder longtime friends with albert brooks sat down with them talking about comedy and albert brooks's origins letterman's in it john stewart's in it chris rocks in it it's a pretty amazing cast ben still feels like movies are back oh I, I was about to say cody you nailed it i said you know if you've kind of took a break for movies for a little while you're like ah, oh, you know this is you can't miss any more yeah the next eight weeks, we are rolling into award season, oh. so you don't want to miss any Cinephiles, Jim. Um, as always, good to have Chris Cody along for the ride, and um, Cody's quite busy today. He's, he's EPing because Mike's oh. out today, so you're, you're just a little flummoxed right now. I am just, we are doing so much content, too much, some would say, but here we are. <laughs> but the content is being cranked out. Speaking of content and trying to trim down the content in one's home, I know people always talk about spring cleaning. My wife said you got to do some fall cleaning because you're redoing some stuff here in the basement. And I, I hate the term reno. I'll never say reno. We're not we're not renoing anything. There's no renovations. It's just literally just just get rid of a bunch of crap. So I said, all right, what can I get rid of? She's 130 CDs. You don't listen to these. These are worthless. I said, but this these CDs are emblems of my life, the nostalgia, <laughs> especially 90s music, because that was ages 12 to 22 for me. So I said, you know, Soundgarden, Pearl Jam, all this 90s grunge and hip hop, all the rest of it. She goes, no, no, you don't need it. And I said, all, all right. right. So I, I, I took a picture of it and I posted on Twitter. I said, who wants 130 CDs? People are making jokes, you know, who else has CDs? And oh, well, I can see that Led Zeppelin album. Or Eric Clapton, I think, was one of the albums, very famous. So some guy messaged me and we're in, we're in contact right now. He said, okay, I'm, I'm going to give you a price. I'm like, great. And he said, the shipping, 
can be a bit of a challenge. Is well, can you Venmo me the money? He's well, I mean, can't I can't Venmo? But he's got an address in Montana, so I'm not really sure how this works right now. That he can't Venmo me because he's in Canada, but there's a PO box in Montana. Whatever it is, it's going to come out to maybe. And I don't want to. I'm going to hold cross my fingers here if he's listening to the podcast. He said he goes, I might need a couple of days of this. I go, no problem, and I'll send it out to you. Guess what price he's willing to give me, Cody, for 130 CDs? 500 bucks. I love that price. It's not the case. We're looking like 130 bucks. He's like, I'll give oh, you. Oh yeah, that's true. I mean, he goes, I'll give you. He goes, I'll give you. Actually, he offered 80 bucks. And he goes, I'll cover the postage. I go, the postage is not going to be cheap. Though we're looking at at least 40, 50 bucks to mail 130 CDs. That that's not going to be cheap. So he goes, dollar CD. I go, okay. I, I don't like the return on investment of what I put into it, but I'm getting something out of it. DVDs, my wife goes through, you got to get rid of some DVDs. Honestly, I said, I'm not getting rid of many, my, many of my DVDs because I still watch DVDs on DVD players, as you know. I said, you have not watched a movie on a DVD player in at least five years. So you can get rid of Helen and Troy. Uh, she's got the original Matrix, uh, Sense of Sensibility. This stuff's gone. I mean, you never watched You stuff. like the extras, right? Because you can get all these movies on streaming now, but you love the extras. You nailed it. And that's why. So director commentary, interviews with the cast members trailers, interviews, all that stuff. I got to keep it. You're right. Because of the special features, I got to keep these DVDs, especially the Criterion. But then the big one goes, listen, these books. You got to get rid of some of these books. Because the movies you rewatch, books, you don't reread these books. Even the best books, you don't reread them. Now, I get the fact you go in someone's home, you want to be like, oh, look, I have the autobiography of Malcolm X. Like It's a conversation starter. Oh, what a great book. But all these books, you're not reading again. And a lot of these books you got for free, for the pockets, et cetera. So I trim the herd because I want you to be as aggressive as possible. I said, all right. 50 books I got rid of. I go to the library in town here. I don't know if you've donated books where you're at, but I always think it's going to be a, a pleasant experience. I remember when I first moved in like four and a half years ago, I tried to donate at Ridgewood, my neighboring town, and they flat out refused. I walked in, I, I'm carrying, she goes, no. I go, watch this. We don't accept books. I go, this is a library. I'm moving here. <laughs> I, I've got 20 books. She goes, we don't accept them. I go, if you don't accept them, I'm throwing them out. Like that to a librarian or somebody who loves books, that's like heartbreaking. Yes. I go, I'm gonna throw that. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna watch you watch me do this. I'm gonna light this on fire. And I'm gonna go put this in the garbage can. That's what you're doing. So we don't accept books. So this time I wasn't sure my wife could just go for it. I go, okay. So I go to the Hocus Public Library, I, and it's a big winding staircase. Get up there. I've got two. You're big- like imagining this like welcome of like, thank you, sir. Yes. You are donating to us. You should be celebrated. Thank you. It's like when you go to Goodwill, you feel great about yourself right. afterwards, giving away your old trash. Instead, I walk in too many tra- and I start emptying the box. I have some books to give. She's like, oh, okay. Like, doesn't seem pleased. Wouldn't say she was upset. She's like, oh, okay, like a little hesitant. I start pulling, what is it? The Gas House Gang, 1930 St. Louis Cardinals. Great book. Okay. I can see where we're getting rid of it. Um, and, and we start going through all movie books. Okay, whatever. And then when she goes, oh, I read this book. It's TJ Newman, author. We had this in a fog. Yeah, she goes, yeah. She goes, I didn't like it. I go, wow. <laughs> I go, you're unbelievable. I go, the one book you recognize you didn't like. I go, yeah, she goes, I, I didn't really care about the characters at all over the place. I said, I really didn't. I go, well, I'm giving it to you. So it, it's it's a relative. If the book came out this year. So this is definitely something that's going to be in demand. I have a theory that these people just don't want to do work. <laughs> that they are like, <laughs> that you, <laughs> that you, that like, that you're just creating a lot of bookkeeping work for them. And they're like, oh, damn, I'm, I'm about to get off here. Uh, no, we don't take books. Sorry. Yeah. You think she's just straight up lazy? You think she just didn't want to go through all this stuff? So I end up dropping like twenty, and I'm and I'm like I'm almost like selling around. Like I'm taking the book and I'm brandishing it. I go, huh? Joe DiMaggio, A Hero's Life, pretty interesting look at DiMaggio. And she's just like, uh huh. I put in each book. I go, huh? Shooting Midnight Cowboy, classic Dustin Hoffman film. I think this will be enjoyable for your audience. Putting it down. And then she goes, okay, well, thanks a lot. I go, I have more. And she goes, is it about the same amount? And I'm, I don't know what to say because it is. I, I gave 25 books. I got 25 in the car. I guess just 
Okay. <laughs> I go back down. And I go, okay, let me, let me just, at least, I put five books in the car. I go, I'll take these to work. Because at work, MLB Network, there is also a shelf of old books. I can just, I can put five books there. Some of the baseball right. books. I can, okay, that's fine. But I go back, I go 20 more books. And by the end of it, she's just like, I go, can you count how many? She goes, I just want to be clear on this. She's like, yeah, I go, she goes, 45 books. And I'm expecting a big pat on the back. Like, I'm expecting to feel really good about myself, what I've done for American literacy. And she's like, Okay, have a nice day. Like, I, I hope I never see you again. I was like, wow, okay. Well, my wife is thrilled though, man. 130 CDs, 30 DVDs. DVDs, nobody's taking. I try, I took it. I go, look, Shark Tale. She goes, I'm not interested in DVDs. We don't take any. Do you have a DVD? She goes, we don't take DVDs. We have some DVDs here for rent. We don't take any more. So the question is this how many CDs do you currently have? And do you think you need to get rid of your DVD collection slash books? Zero and zero. <laughs> Like all of my CDs never made it from my parents' house to my place. And I have my, all my DVDs would be at my parents' house. Maybe they have a box of them somewhere. I don't have any DVDs so or CDs. CDs you knew. You're like, dude, I, I, you don't even have them at your parents' place. At one point, I had like a binder full of them back right. in the day. Right. But I don't honestly, I, I slacked on that. I don't even, I couldn't tell you where they are. No, I don't think you slacked. I think you were, you evolved with the times. You realized, wait, yeah. <laughs> cars don't have CD players anymore. I don't own a CD player. Everything's on Spotify. I don't need this. It's just in my parents' basement. Similarly, I used for to love burning CDs though. Yes. Man, did I love burning CDs. Well, that's why I summer, love Summer, summer 2008. Yeah, like you get like a good dance mix going. Like you put together your, yeah. own, your own dance mix CD. Like that's, mm -hmm. that's some fire there. Anyways, uh, perhaps you're lamenting. I, I thought people would be making fun of me more when I posted that picture. The amount of people are like, oh, I still have a bunch of my CDs too. I'm like, what? I go like, my wife's killing me. I go like, I can't believe it's 2023 and you took you this long. And yet there's countless people who are like, oh, I still have all my CDs. I'm like, do you think it's going to come back around like on vinyl yeah. or something? Like, well, maybe I'm just going to have it right now. So I feel like I've cleared up the ship, so to speak. And again, I'm doing my part to help out with the book. So good luck with your fall cleaning wherever you may be. All right, let's do a couple of movies here. First off, Nicolas Cage. Speaking of the movie renaissance that Chris mentioned right now, it's the Nick Cage renaissance. I mean, my man is back in a big way after making a lot of bad movies for a while and overcoming an incredible debt, which he's been honest about. He just bought way too much stuff, made some bad investments in real estate, but now he's back. Now he's making movies that not only he cares about, but they're actually good and right in his zenith movies that are being loved by the critics. And one of those films is called Dream Scenario. It's currently in limited release. I believe it's in wider release November 22nd. My boy, Jeff Lovelock, one of my high school friends, we've known each other almost 30 years. He's in New York City this past weekend. He's like, what do you want to do? What do we always want to do? Let's go eat and let's go watch a movie. So I said, I know the exact place to go. Scorsese was just on with Colbert and he said the best pizza in New York City is Albert's. Chris used that clip in case you've missed it last couple of weeks on Cinephile. He said, yeah, I go 57th Street. Let's go. So it's, it's an Albert's or it's Angelo's. Right, I'm going to script the name. I better double check this. It's either called Angelo's or Albert's, but it's on 57th, right across from the DGA, the Director's Guild of America building. And before we walk in, I tell Lovelock, I go, hey, by the way, Marty used to go here with like De Palma, Spielberg, like heavy hitters. They, they'd watch a movie, but they'd go get pizza here. So let's try to replicate this. Let's imagine it's 1977. And here we are enjoying this experience. And here's the thing with pizza, Cody, you know this. And again, we've discussed my peculiar tastes. Because I go, you know, non-pork. So I go grilled chicken and, you know, ground beef. People are like, oh, this sounds awful. Yeah. I said, let's, let's not cloud the issue. The only thing I wanted to get was mushrooms because I'm not a mushroom guy. I go, yeah, we lived together for you. I should remember this. I was former roommates. You're not a mushroom guy. He's like, no. Green peppers. Like, Virk, I know you're all in this. No. I go, all right. Just cheese. I'm telling you, man, the, the, the simple essence of a great cheese pizza. Oh, it's the best. You can't beat it. <laughs> it's no. phenomenal. And that pizza came out and I just knew. I'm like, no, Marty's going to be right. This pizza's awesome so if you're ever in new york city 
Marty's right. Delicious pizza. Angelo's slash Albert's, whatever the hell it's called. It's on 57th <laughs> Street. It's across from the DGA. It starts with an A. People are very friendly. It was awesome. So then I said, all right, dude, let's go see movies. Like, yeah, we both love Nick Cage. Let's go see Dream Scenario. This is one of the weirdest films I've seen in a long time and definitely calls to mind the great movies of Charlie Kaufman. When you think about being John Malkovich and adaptation, remember Spike Jones directed that. Kaufman wrote the script. Here's the premise for you. Hapless family man, Paul Matthews, Nicolas Cage, finds his life turned upside down and millions of strangers suddenly start seeing him in their dreams. But when his nighttime appearances take a nightmarish turn, Paul is forced to navigate his newfound stardom in this wickedly entertaining comedy from writer-director Christoph Borgley and producer Ari Aster. It's a hell of a premise for a movie, and that's exactly where it starts. A woman, a young girl, starts floating towards the heavens, and there is Nicolas Cage. Bold, he's got the you know, horseshoe hair, he's got the glasses. Yeah. Not quite puffy, but kind of wearing a baggy sweater. You're making him look like suburban dad. And he's just sitting there watching. And then he goes to the store, and the woman's like, oh my God, goes to a restaurant. He goes, oh my God, you look so familiar. He's like, yeah, no, no. She's like, I, yeah, I, I, are you sure you don't come here before? He's like, no. But same thing keeps happening. People go, oh my God, you're so familiar. The one guy goes, hey, this is going to be so weird, but I, you were in my dream last night. He's like, really? He's like, yeah, you, you were just like an innocent bystander. Like, you just you just kind of were there, right? I remember your face. <laughs> and that becomes a phenomenon. Wherever he goes, people go, oh my God, there's a guy. He was in my dream. And so he's really confused by this, and but also entertained. He's like, I'm becoming kind of a phenomenon. And he's telling his wife, Julian Nicholson, about this. Eventually, he gets interviewed like on major television shows, like this is the guy. He's appearing in everyone's dreams. But as the plot says, eventually it gets nightmarish. Eventually, he goes from just being an innocent bystander in dreams to something much darker. And in one of the funniest scenes of the year, this was, you know what, you know what's so funny? I'm just watching this Albert Brooks documentary, which we'll review next week. You guys know what's something so funny? People just start banging the table. Like yeah. they, they can't, they're just banging the table funny because they can't laugh anymore. He goes, there's one scene where he's with this young girl, um, Michael Sarah's in the way. Michael Sarah plays an advertising executive. He's like, hey, we want to use the fact that you become famous, start having you pitch Sprite, et cetera, do some other ads. And there's a young girl in there in her 20s. And after she's like, hey, if you want to grab a drink, he's like, yeah, okay, sure. And they go out and she's, <laughs> this scene, they're in a bar first and she's just telling him, she's like, I've been having intense sex dreams about you. And the look on Nick Cage's face, he, he plays it <laughs> so beautifully, like this middle-aged man who's like, you know, this is my this is my moment of a lifetime. Like, can we get another drink? Like, let's two more drinks here. Keep it coming. Yep. Yeah. And so go back to her place. I will say no further except to say that sex scene was so funny. I was the guy banging. I was I was clapping my hands in the theater. I was That's laughing great. so hard. Me and Lovett were dying. And by the way, good crowd. When these movies open up and this, you know, it's literally in like two theaters in New York City. The people that are like hardcore cinephiles, like you're there because you're like, I heard about this movie. I heard it's crazy. I heard it's Nicolas Cage. So it was it, Nick Cage fans. Exactly. Nick Cage fans. Like it was it's a good reminder of why people go, why do I go to the theater? I'm like, but when you go to see a movie like this opening weekend, it's a great communal experience. And I'd say that whole theater, we were dying at that that scene. Having said that, the second half of the movie, not nearly as funny, but it does get darker because then he starts showing up in people's dreams, but he's doing bad things. And one scene, he starts choking this woman. Another scene starts stabbing a person. So now all of a sudden it goes from, hey, that's the guy in dreams to no, that guy's a freak. And he's a teacher. And the the moment where he knows something has changed when he goes into his class and no one's in the class. And they're like, yeah, they're all scared of you. Like they're having dreams that you're like terrorizing them and stuff. Like they think you're a bad person. So the movie ends up making really interesting comments about cancel culture because now he gets canceled and he hasn't even done anything. He's just appearing in people's dreams and the whole concept of cancel culture and, you know, male patriarchy and, uh, you know, showbiz culture. It's it's definitely got lots of different ideas working for it. I don't think, again, the second half works as strong as the first half. But if you're a Nicolas Cage fan, which Mike Ryan's going to be all over this, I'm sure maybe even Stu Gotts at one point, I'll see him. And I thought it was really funny. And just his acting was tremendous. I mean, it's for, for the sake of originality and humor alone, 
I give it three and police. I might even go three and a half. I might be inclined to go a little higher just because of the fact it was so different. And uh, like I said, very comedic and zany and bonkers. Then it becomes dramatic and a cautionary tale. But A for effort for trying something different. And in many cases, stick in the landing. Dream scenario, currently 91% Rotten Tomatoes. Again, opening wider audience, November 22nd. I highly encourage it. And Cage kind of draws on that character from adaptation, uncertain of himself hesitant it's another reminder what a gifted actor he is and particularly what a great comic actor he is as well unfortunately not nearly as much of a rave review for the marvels the 33rd <laughs> movie right now from the marvel cinematic universe took two of my boys to go see it that's 30 bucks for tickets 19 bucks for a large popcorn with a refill and two slushies but this is a movie where even the cast themselves seems to be tired of the story carol danvers who's captain marvel that's brie larson reclaimed her identity from the tyrannical Cree, taking revenge in the superhuman i'm gonna stop reading this already i'm bored of the plot and this <laughs> is the point now between the time of the first captain marvel movie which i thought was fine to now, like there's been a Miss Marvel series, which my wife and kids watch on Disney Plus. There's been some other Marvel business. So even while watching it, like I'm I'm confused at times. I'm like, well, I'm, I'm missing elements of the story because I guess I didn't watch the show. And maybe this is taking off from the show. And this has been advanced on this. And like it's always tricky because you say, well, are they all interconnected, this Marvel Cinematic Universe? So I have to watch the previous one to understand this one, or should they all be self-contained movies? But the bottom line is this is one of the worst Marvel movies in a while. It was definitely cringeworthy at times. I thought the plot had plot holes and, and literally didn't make sense at times. You know, there's one scene where they're all transporting each other and teleporting and, and the characters almost seem interchangeable. That's how dull they all are. Brie Larson, who when I was at the Oscars, I remember my cousin Nyla said, who was the most attractive person there? And I go, honestly, I got to tell you, Brie Larson, who is a worthy Oscar winner for Room, tremendous performance. When I was on the red carpet, I'm like, no, she'll take your breath away. And let me tell you something, she's taking your breath away in the Marvels in a bad way, because I'm like, she is sleepwalking through this movie. She won her Oscar. She cast her the Captain Marvel. I hope she takes her talent and does something worthy of her talent, because along with being beautiful, she's a much better actress than she's demonstrating here. The plot is paint by numbers. Couldn't be more generic. I mentioned Iman Vellani. She's great as Kamala Khan. Sam Jackson does show up. He's picked up a paycheck as Nick Fury. But it kind of reminds me of what Roger Ebert once said about in the movie In the Line of Fire, which is a great action film from the 90s. Recently, the rewatchables did it. And Ebert said, you know, most of these movies are only as good as their villain. Action movies, thrillers, they got to have a great villain. You know, you think of Die Hard, you think of Cliffhanger, you think of Terminator. I mean, you've got to have great villains. And I don't think the Marvelous is a particularly memorable villain. And that's one of the many weaknesses of the film. I'm giving it one and a half Maple Leafs. It's from Nia DaCosta. I, I don't think it's going to do well at the box office. Already there's articles. I saw one in Variety saying, is the MCU in trouble? Like that's that's the headline now. Like is the Marvel Cinematic Universe in trouble? 33 movies. They've kind of run out of the tank. They run out of creative inspiration. Who knows what's going to happen next? But if I were you, I would avoid the Marvels and I would go check out Dream Scenario. I would also check out The Holdovers. Here's the writer of this brilliant movie. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. 
Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. What a pleasure to bring in David Hemmingson. He is the writer and producer of one of the best films of the year. It's called The Holdovers. David's been working in television for nearly three decades as a showrunner of series like Kitchen Confidential and Whiskey Cavalier. And now all of a sudden, the story of The Holdovers comes to fruition. David, first and foremost, congratulations on a terrific film. You must be very proud. Thank you. No, I am. I'm, I'm ecstatic, honestly. And uh, I'm just deeply gratified that this story is getting told. And I'm I'm over the moon that Alexander Payne is the one doing it. You know, That's <laughs> good news. And w- so the story behind it's great. Your latest pitch was an hour-long dramedy entitled Stone, Stonehaven. Based on your experiences at an elite all-boys prep school in the 80s, the pilot lands on the desk of two-time Oscar-winning filmmaker Alexander Payne, who liked the script, but asked you to instead write a film set in the same world. He gave me the log line, an odiferous, ocularly challenged teacher is obliged to stay over Christmas to babysit a group of students, one of whom has been stranded by his newly remarried mother. After that, he gave me free reign. Yeah. What happened next? Basically, it was a, it was a it was so funny you should say because I was going back over the earlier drafts and I was like, basically what happened was I just started trying to break the story and, and my initial kind of run at it was um, through a series of like almost little short stories, you know, that I'd write these little short stories for Alexander because I come from TV and I'm I'm very much a, what they call a there are two kinds of writers kind of planners and pantsers like Stephen King describes them as right there are planners who do yes. this intense sort of like oh I have to outline everything I'm one of those I'm not a see the pants kind of guy I'm not a pantser. So I started writing these kind of like little stories that were kind of like, he'd read them and go, oh, this is kind of nice. This is sort of like Roald Dahl meets Raymond Carver. This is, but not this. Hmm. And I was like, okay. <laughs> so I take another shot at it. And eventually, you know, the thing that kind of peeled away and we we realized that I realized that, you know, working with him, he was kind of directing me as a, as a, a director, a direct actor. He's kind of directing me as a writer. We kind of decided that and point blank said, like, I don't, I don't really, I'm not as interested in the kind of romantic emotional trajectory of the Paul character, which is what I was originally writing, but more in the relationship and the growth of the kid, which I thought was incredibly a point that was incredibly well taken because we invest in the future and the kid is the future. So, you know, in order to get sacrifice out of this guy, he has to sort of pivot to the kid. And so I then started writing the story more leaning into the kid. And there was a moment actually in constructing the narrative that opened it all up for me. Um, But, you know, it was, it was that sort of, gradual conversation where I would produce things and he would read them and he kind of go, okay, go more in this direction. And then there was a burst. There's something really opened up the story for me. And that is the moment when he dislocates his shoulder. Yeah. Um, you know, first of all, helicopter choppering the kids off, uh, off campus was great. Cause I didn't want to do dead poet society. So I'm like, let's get rid of these kids. And then yeah. when he hurts himself in the movie, um, it, it drives them together because they then have a shared, I don't want to ruin the spoiler alert. Right. But, um, he then has a shared, um, lie with Paul. The two of them are, are sort of on the same page, uh, bound bound by their shameful secret, right? Um, and that allows them to open up to each other. So then then it kind of flowed from there. And uh, it took about 18 months all in to get the whole thing done because we were both you know busy doing other things and then COVID hit. And, but it was one of the most delightful and relaxed and like lovely collaborations and 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 relationships creative relationships i've ever had alexander Payne's a wonderful guy and it was it was a it was a, a just sheer pleasure writing it 
I love the point you made. You don't want to make it like Dead Poet Society because you're right. While watching it, I said, okay, now he's going to be this character. He's going to be this character. I love the fact you just pared it down and go, no, it's just Paul and him. <laughs> yeah, man. Like, that's it. I, I don't need who's the Ethan Hawke character yeah, and yeah. Robert Sean Leonard. No, 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 I haven't seen that crap before. Yeah. This is about these two. I'm honing it on these two. Exactly. It was great. Exactly. Exactly. There's and I love the fact. Go ahead. I would say those three and Mary as well. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Yeah. I love that Alexander made a point to you at one point because it's kind of like the breaking point. Yeah. And he wasn't meaning the expression. He meant the Michael Curtiz yeah, film, the breaking point, which you then would watch. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, but that's how he communicates. You know, he's got this incredible encyclopedic knowledge of film, and he's never looking for a plot point. He's looking for a tone, a feeling, um, the dynamics behind a turn. And that that moment you're talking about was we were going through some stuff late in the second act, and you know, and he said to me, like, yeah, I just feel like there's something here. It's, you know, there's some texture we need with Mary and, and, and the men. We need some sort of like something that's like the breaking point. I'm like, yeah, you mean the breaking point sort of like the right before the all is lost or the all is lost moment, which the protagonist confronts. He's like, stop, stop with the with the mumbo jumbo. He's like the breaking point. 1951, Michael Curtiz, John Garfield's last picture, Felix, Phyllis Saxon, um, third adaptation of, of Hemingway's to have and have not go and then you like hung up the phone and then i'm like i don't what the fuck does that mean i'm like all right so i go down to cinephile plug for cinephile saw in santa monica best video store in la probably the best video store in the country These nice guys, jp and greg are my buddies like they're like film historians themselves they steer me yeah. to this movie i watch this movie man right i plug it in and i'm watching this like, breaking point breaking point what does he mean this breaking point this is the movie breaking point so i'm watching it and you know, you really have to sort of try to occupy Alexander's headspace, which I, I think, God willing, I've successfully done. I hope, I hope, I, I tried mightily, you know, and I would be watching it and I'd be going, all right, he wants this sort of emotional tonal shift. And I'm like, I don't know what he, I don't know what he wants. I don't, what, what is it? I, oh my God, there it is. Oh my God, there it is. And there's a moment between two characters. And by the way, narratively has nothing in common with my film whatsoever, whatsoever narratively, but there's an emotional turn that occurs and all of a sudden, a light goes off in your head. You're like, oh, oh, this is what he wants. He wants this quality, this feeling, this sort of umami almost, you know, he wants this. Mm -hmm. um, and that's how that's how, how that came about. But, you know, it's 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 unique to the way he, he kind of collaborates and the way he communicates. Yeah, and I think it was helpful, too. He said to you at one point, I want to make a Hal Ashby film, right? And then you went and said, okay, I'll watch some Hal Ashby movies and Robert Altman movies and Bob Rafelson movies. Yep. And it's got that kind of essence. Like, you know, Alexander said, I wish I could have been a 70s filmmaker. And the best compliment I can pay is that, to me, is the, the golden age of filmmaking. And this film feels like it came right out of that era, which is amazing how you guys were able to replicate that. Wow, and that's so kind of you. That's that. Thank you. That's the highest praise you could you could level at us. And I, and I deeply, deeply appreciate it because that's exactly what we were going for. I mean, Again, it was it was a humanist era, you know. It was that the seventies, you know, coming out of the the kind of collapse of the studio system, kind of collapsed like a flan in a cupboard, right? And all of a sudden, starting around sixty seven, with Bonnie and Clyde, things started changing. Easy Rider, huge momentum into the seventies. So now you're telling these humanist films. I could, I would even argue, and I think I could make a case for it that The Godfather is a profoundly humanist family film in some respects. You know, it's a film about family. Yeah. So the idea of of elevating the human story, you know, without bombast, without special effects, without anybody in spandex, that kind of thing, just sort of like just doing a human story about people in their lives was something that we, we strive mightily toward. And I, and I hope we succeeded. I, I really do, because it was a labor of love for both of us. This, this movie was a labor of love. Well, I, obviously, with all writing, you feel like some of it has to rely on an experience. And so 
Barton Academy, very loosely based in the most general sense on Deerfield, which is mm-hmm. a lot of prep school in Massachusetts. And you attended a day school in Hartford, if I'm not mistaken. Yep. So you knew a lot of Deerfield types, right? You drew on that experience. Yeah. You know, I went to, I went to the Watkinson school, which is a, a spectacular school um, for six years. I was a scholarship student at the Watkinson school. And what I, what I learned from the Watkinson school was sort of like, I got contact. I was in contact with people I, I wouldn't normally have been in contact with because I kind of came from a lower middle class background. My mom was a brilliant woman. She was a nurse. My dad was a merchant seaman who became um, an English professor after running away from home at 15 and, and being at sea from the ages of 15 to 27, first on liberty ships at the end of World War II at, at the age of 15, through all the way through the Korean War. He was, he was a naval officer. Um, but, you know, so we had, a, we had a, a real love of education in our family, but we didn't really have any, any cash per se. So when I got to Watkinson, there were some, you know, fairly wealthy people. And then we would run, I would run cross country against some of the bigger schools, whether it's Loomis Chafee or Kingswood Oxford, sometimes, you know, go up, run against Deerfield or debate up there, you know? Um, and so I, and I knew these kids because they ran sort of in the same general circles that I ran in. And I became fascinated and enamored with the sort of kind of grandeur and almost, you know, old world richness of these places but also sort of the disconnects between the haves and have nots, you know? So, yeah, I mean, Deerfield Academy was lo- roughly, and honestly, I'll be honest, like a separate piece, the, the book, a separate piece really hit me hard when I was a kid. And I think that was, that, that was set at Deerfield, I believe. And I, of course, hmm. um, catching the rise said at the fictional Pensy prep, which I think is honestly a stand in for, for, for Deerfield. But, um, yeah. but yeah, so yeah, Deerfield was the name in the original screenplay. And then we changed it to Barton, but it was meant, it was meant to be a Deerfield type school read Deerfield Academy. Yeah. <laughs> So Professor Paul Hunnam, which is Paul Giamatti's character, is is so brilliantly communicated by Giamatti. We'll get to him in, in just a second. But as far as you writing it, it was based on your Uncle Earl, who in some ways raised you. And you, you kind of described him in an interesting fashion. He's got that hard outer shell, but a chewy caramel center. Yeah, that's him entirely. That's cr- entirely correct. Yeah. Yeah. He's 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 a, he's that he's a he's a tootsie. He's a tootsie pop. He was a tootsie pop. You know, so it's sort of like, yeah, you know, I mean, this guy, my folks split. I love my dad. But my parents, you know, a lot of marriages kind of cratered in this late 60s, early 70s. It was like a divorce epidemic. And I'm I'm one of the kids that had divorce epidemic. And, you know, it was a very strange time. If you ever seen the movie The Ice Storm, it was a very strange time yeah. culturally, you know. Kevin Klein, yeah. Yeah, a brilliant film. Sigourney Weaver. Um, David Krumholtz is amazing in that. Elijah Wood, you know. Um, yeah. A lot of great Tina, uh, Christina Ricci. But it's a great film. But I, I think accurately kind of characterized the divorce kind of dynamic. It's funny. I, my personal history, I'm not pushing it through movies. It's it's a little, it shows you what a movie fanatic I am. But um, but yeah, you know, I mean, my uncle Earl stepped into the breach and kind of raised me after my my parents split. And he was this World War II veteran like my dad, but he was older when he went into the Pacific theater. He fought on Saipan and he he never went back to college and kind of knocked around Europe and became just through experiential knowledge. One of the most extraordinary men I think that I've ever known. And not I think I know that I've ever known. I mean, spoke like seven languages. He was a, a the manager of the press office at the U.N., um, like I, I think I wrote in an article recently, like, you know, he knew everything there was to know about shotguns and chainsaws and Chinese food and cursing and like uh, opera and rock and roll and jazz. And he was just this great hard ass who, who raised me. And uh, so many of Paul's phrases are directly from him. Like, you know, sex is 99% uh, uh, goodwill and 1% friction. You know, it's sort of like that kind of thing, you know, uh, just, uh, you know, life is like a hen house ladder for most folks, shitty and short. That's also an earlism, you know? So I was raised, you know, he used to wake me up in the morning. We go hunting in the fall during deer season, or we go fishing uh, in the spring. And he would raise me by coming in, throwing on the lights, ripping off the covers and bellowing, wake up kid, it's daylight in the swamp, you know? 
Um, and so that's also in the movie, you know, so, so much of him is in this movie and so much of him is in Paul, Paul Hunnam. Yeah. It's a deep reverence for Dickens and Thackeray, as you also said. And I mean, the one liners, David, are amazing. Like, I, I think it's an incredible script because of the Thank beats you. of it and the journey you take. But some of the one liners are unreal. I mean, when, when Giovanni refers to him as a hormonal vulgarian, yeah. I mean, this, this, I amazing one liners. I, I had that insult leveled at me many times as a teenage boy by my uncle. Uh, <laughs> a hormonal vulgarian. Um, spoiler alert. Anybody hasn't seen it, go ahead and skip ahead the next two minutes. I'm going to talk about the ending a little bit. We'll do it as carefully as possible. But I thought it was so important. I said, okay, how are they going to stick the landing here? And, you know, these characters are changed forever. Mm -hmm. And it's 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 sweet, but it's not overly sentimental. There's a bittersweetness to it. And I love the fact that, like, when they got choked up, like I got choked up in the theater. I said, oh, my God, just as they're getting choked up, I'm getting oh. choked up. And I just I love the fact they didn't hug. Oh, dude, I thought it was. Bless so you, critical. Bless you, bless you, and thank you for saying that. Um, Alexander and I absolutely felt they shouldn't hug because in 1970, those that boy and that man would not hug. It just was not going to happen. You know, 53 years ago, that's not how you express yourself, especially at a place like Barton Academy. You know, you would not do that. Um, I love that scene for a thousand reasons. I'll give you a little Easter egg or a little behind the scenes on that one. We were losing light really fast. Um, and so the sun's going down, the sun, the sun's in the kid's eyes, right? He's kind of squinting, but it's like, he's almost trying not to cry, which is kind of true. Paul in the meantime is sort of like, you know, increasingly in the shade and Igel Bird, our cinematographer is leaning over to Alexander going, we're losing the light. We're losing it. We're good. It's going to go away. So it's like, you know, we're trying, we're getting through it. Jim Adi's feeling it. Like the direction that Alexander is giving him is so minuscule, but the, because they know each other so well, it's almost telepathic and he's adjusting in that whole scene. You know, and as he's the gathering dark is, sort of, is kind of growing around him as the kid is sunlit as he runs away. The whole thing worked like serendip in a serendipitous way that was just beautiful. Uh, but yeah, no hugs, no hugs, dude, no hugs. You mentioned the fact Giamatti and Alexander Pitt almost telepathic. At one point, I think I read uh, Alexander Pitt was saying in a podcast I was listening to, he said, he goes, sometimes it would just be a grunt. Like, it would just be a look. And I'm like, like they, they already know what they're going to look like. <laughs> What's it like being around that kind of shorthand? It's great. I mean, my whole role as a producer on the movie was to sort of be there to sort of like, just whispering in AP's ear as much as possible. He's such a gentleman. Like he's really a coat and tie director, you know, and he never blows his days and he's the calmest guy. He knows what he wants. He's so yeah. confident in what he's doing, you know, and he's, his relationship with, with Paul goes back to sideways, obviously, right? So they know each other. And I think Alexander, there's such a, a climate of mutual respect between them, you know, that, that they kind of understand what the character was, you know, what Paul's range is, which is virtually limitless, right? But Alexander mm -hmm. knows exactly how to find the wedge. Like, this is what we need. And they kind of look at each other. And, you know, I do remember that last scene, though, Alexander saying to him stuff like, there he goes, there goes the kid, there goes your past, there goes his future. And now here you are, like just these, this quiet conversation they were having. And when you watch that final scene, which I think is one of those beautiful scenes I've ever seen in a movie, just watch yeah. Paul Giamatti's face as he, as he feels all these emotions, like four or five emotions pass across his face, you know, like, like a series of clouds. It's like really beautiful. Yeah, I've been telling people, you know, go watch the holdovers if you love the work of Alexander Payne and so-called return to form after downsizing didn't do as well. If you love the writing of Dave Hemmings, you're going to love the one-liners, the stories. And I said, but ultimately, if you just want to worship the altar of Paul Giamatti, go watch the holdovers. Like you've given him, I don't want to quite say the role of a lifetime because he's done so many other great movies, but this is such a rich role that only a guy I think of Giamatti's talent could do. Like this curmudgeon who's got a you know a soft undershell, and and Alexander Payne has said as well. He goes, listen, I don't care about box office and stuff. Paul Giamatti is a movie star. In the same way that Edward G. Robinson was a movie yeah. star of his era, Paul Giamatti is a movie star. There's no question about yeah, it. Yeah, and we don't make them. They don't mint them like Paul Giamatti anymore. I mean, he is a deeply original 
American treasure. And the guy is just so great. And there's no vanity in him, but there's nothing, there's nothing but like talent. Like there's just talent. And, you know, in the same way that Daniel Day-Lewis, who, you know, does a different thing than Paul, you know, in terms of tra the transformative stuff he's done, Paul transforms himself as well. But what Paul has is this incredible reservoir of emotion that he is able to communicate like in micro expressions, like he can bring you, he can bring you into his feelings and make them universal in a way that, you know, that I've never, ever seen in an actor before. I think he's, I completely agree with Alexander um, on that observation. He's a brilliant actor. A couple of thoughts here. Divine Joy Randolph, man, she's amazing. Cool. This movie again, talk about a tough character to play. And I thought she was so good because she was never reaching for it. It was very kind of understated and subtle. And yet she's dealing with this tremendous grief. Talk to me about the writing of that character and how she performed it. Yeah, I, I wrote that character. That's that. I, that's a, just a, it's a love letter to my mom. Um, my mom was a single mom who raised me uh, after my folks split up and she would get up at quarter four in the morning uh, and go work the Mount Sinai hospital. And so she could be home in time to make me dinner, you know? So, and that was like five, six days a week. And it was like this unswerving, complete and utter dedication to me. Um, and I just thought to myself, you know, I, and I, I've obviously gone to Watkinson and, and been to prep schools. And I, I looked around at our community of people, the people that she worked with, the RNs, the licensed practical nurses, the LPNs. My uncles were janitors um, in Middletown, Connecticut at Wesleyan at, uh, and uh, at the courthouse. So I kind of grew up in this mixed community of people um, uh, who who's uh, the war ended when I was 11. But like I would see my friends, older brothers and uncles go to Vietnam and some of them didn't come back. And it usually was the poor kids. and It was oftentimes the black kids that would happen to because and then I did some more research and I'm like, oh, my God, like the disproportionate way in which young black men were kind of thrown into the, the meat grinder in Vietnam, you know, 11% of the population, 16% of the, of the draftees, like 23% of frontline battlefield casualties up until about 67 in Vietnam were young black men. So I was like, okay, this seems to me to be an incredibly, you know, important thing to talk about. So I just wanted to install my mother's immense strength uh, and, and, and capacity for love and grief into this woman who experienced something that was very real you know, at the time and, and try to honor that as best I could, you know, and and I think we're divine. Just I, I can't I'm speechless when I try to talk about it because her she's just such a oh my God, she's a brilliant actress. I mean, like just or actor, I should say, like just the just the pauses, you know, never mind the hilarious delivery of the lines, never mind her being able to go from from deep, deep. You could feel the pain to, to like this incredibly wry line that cuts it. And what I loved about her portrayal was I wrote sort of an undercurrent, a little anger in Mary because you know, her son has been taken and none of these other kids have been taken. And so, she, of course, she's going to be angry, but she's not explicit about it. She lets it sort of like come out of her as an expression of her grief as well, you know. And then, you know, that sort of that loving and that, that kind of heroic um, sacrifice that she made for him, you know, it, it comes out. And then she's able to reach out to these guys. So she just peels the onion on this character, just reveals this character over the course of the movie in such a beautiful and brilliant way. I just can't say enough about how how honored I am to have her in this film and portraying this character. Yeah, that's well said. And again, Sessa's story is amazing, too. Non-actor, he's completely authentic. The fact he's willing to go toe-to-toe -to -toe Giamatti, I think, leads to a lot of the, the greatness of this movie is you've got a very uninhibited performance. As far as what's next for you, apparently you're collaborating with AP, as you call him, Alexander Payne, on a Western? How cool is that? Oh, dude, I'm over the moon. As a matter of fact, I was just writing a scene this morning to send it off to him. Um, yeah, we're ecstatic. We're kind of like we're, we're still finding it, but we, I think we pretty much got the, the some of the tent poles locked down, which is really cool. I'm, I'm, we're working hard and fast. Set in Nebraska in 1886. Because, you know, if it's an Alexander Payne joint, it's got to be, it's got to touch. Ideally, it's going to touch Nebraska, but this one's in Nebraska, 1886. 
And we're um, we're really I think we're really thrilled with wh- where we are with it right now. Yeah, I loved his point. He's like when you watch a Martin Scorsese film or a Spike Lee movie, it's in New York. If you see a Paul Thomas Anderson film, it's, it's San Fernando Valley. He's like, I'll be the Nebraska guy. Yeah. I will be on <laughs> Nebraska. Yeah. He's told the market on Nebraska. You know, him and Willa Cather. Him and Willa Cather are the two big Nebraskans. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Dave Hennig said he is the writer and producer of The Holdovers. Honestly, it's one of the year's best pictures. I don't want to jinx it, but I think Oscar nominations and glory are coming their way. It's a really sweet, beautiful film. And I think it's, it's perfect for this time of year as well. And uh, honestly, congrats to you, David. And the collaboration with Alexander Payne. I'm a huge fan of his work. Last thought, what's your favorite Alexander Payne film? Non the holdovers. What's the movie that you see? You know what? I fell in love with this filmmaker. Okay. Um, I've seen all of them many, many times because, you know, I've uh, I've obviously worked with him. And it, rule number one, when you work with a director, look at their entire oeuvre. Like, watch everything, okay? Um, yeah. You know, I got to say, and I know it's the obvious choice, but I really, really love the two I love, and they're kind of equally prominent in my heart. Sideways. Just because it's sort of like kicked the door in for me on his work, you know, and then I, I you know, I, then I went back and discovered Citizen Ruth and the early stuff. Uh, sideways because of the incredibly brittle and heartbreaking and hilarious performance that that's you know Paul Giamatti turns in. Thomas Hayden Church obviously is great um, in that as well. Uh, Sandra Oh is great in that. Victoria Madsen's great in that. It's a great movie. And then and then Descendants. I think those two because that's that's just you know Shailene Woodley. I mean you know the thing about you know the thing about AP is that he will he will get he he can get the best out of brilliant actors and i think those are two great alexander payne movies that that absolutely commemorate brilliant performances by all of his actors and you know that's that's a that's a two-hander that's him and them yeah sideways really holds up to it. it's been almost 20 years but i'm with you i can watch it endlessly because it's so funny and yet it's so genuinely moving and heartbreaking oh yeah and the sentence i heard him talk about Clooney. he said Clooney kept saying you know the walk is really critical you know that famous scene where he's in the flip-flops yeah that's and he's so angry that he felt he goes that thing goes there's comedy but there's also seriousness here like he is pissed he's, he's trying pissed. to get to where he needs to go it's kind of it's kind of hilarious and pathetic and and it's like it's sort of like don quixote like if don quixote was wearing flip-flops that's what it would look like you know yeah i still remember the first time i saw about schmidt and i was just Slayed by the ending, like like, right? Oh, like that (laughs) scene where he looks at the picture. All of them are great. Like, yeah, just the (laughs) Ndugo when he looks at the the picture with the sun, he starts to cry. I mean, oh my, that's that's heartbreaking. Yeah, it's great, great stuff. It's hilarious and heartbreaking. The oeuvre of Alexander Payne and of Dave Henderson, <laughs> the holdovers. Fantastic job. And seriously, congratulations. It's a great piece of work. And I uh, hope to chat again soon. Yeah, absolutely, man. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. All right. Thanks so much once again to Dave. He's fantastic. Hopefully everyone goes and checks out The Holdovers. It's now expanding into more theaters as well. Hopefully you enjoyed previous episodes. Maybe you've seen Five Nights at Freddy's on Peacock now, or uh, Chris reviewed Taylor Swift, The Eras Tour. We both really enjoyed Killers of the Flower Moon, and at some point I will see Priscilla. Uh, But I can tell you again, next week, Poor Things, the new film from Yorgos Lanthimos. A lot of Oscar buzz around that film. Saw that at the critic screening, and again, it was really enjoyable to watch it in that experience. Uh, Also, Anatomy of Fall, Palme d'Or winner, foreign film from France. It's excellent. I can't wait to talk about that. And the new Albert Brooks documentary, which is currently available on HBO Max from Rob Reiner, his longtime friend. They've been friends for 60 years. It's crazy. Albert Brooks defending my life. Thanks to Chris Cody and the entire crew. Sometimes we take Thanksgiving off, but we're back next week because we got a big episode. So we're back. Uh, we're also going to have uh, Lisa Cortez 
I believe is going to be on as well. She's the director of the Little Richard documentary, which I reviewed back in April. The DAC documentary is now going to be an HBO Max, so she's going to join us. And also in a couple weeks, more writers. Scott Iman, the writer of a new Charlie Chaplin biography. I've read the book. It's terrific. And Scott's going to join us as well. Thank you, as always, for supporting Cinephile. Go to Apple Podcasts where you can support, rate, and review. I'll continue to take down David Sampson, the Dan Levitard Show, and I'll see you at the movies. Thank you.